Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, for which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. May be seated. You've already figured that out. I am Ransom Kent, and the pastor here. And um, as you just heard, we're in Jonah. This morning, uh, those of you who are joining us online, we welcome you. Those of you who are here, members, regular attenders, guests, we're really thankful that you're here as well. And uh, so, uh, listen, someday we will do a series on Jonah. There's a lot of richness in this text, uh, but that's not our goal for this morning. Uh, we're going through the minor prophets, uh, one per Sunday this summer. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to kind of pull a thread that flows throughout Jonah, and this thread is... God's patient love for us. God's patient love. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in to the text. Father, I just want to start this day by thanking You for Your extravagant love for those who confess Your Son. And I pray this morning... I imagine there are some here who have done that, still do that. I imagine and I hope as well that there are some here that have not yet confessed Jesus Christ. And I pray above all that my words would diminish, but your patient and extravagant and gracious and merciful and eternal and steadfast love would be on full display this morning. Change our hearts with it. Change our lives with it. Draw us to yourself. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, it, it may, for many of you, it may not need to be said, but I think it would be good to start here. Uh, we as a church, a Bible-believing church, we're, we treat Jonah as a historical figure. I mean, it, that may not need to be said for many of you, but I think it's, it's worth talking about to start things off. Um, and I think generally people deny the, the historicity of Jonah based on this... Uh, story of the great fish, or as we all grew up, Jonah and the whale, right? So uh, a couple things. Um, first of all, Jonah as a prophet, this very prophet was mentioned in 2 Kings. 
an accepted historical source, so at least his name is in the record of history. Jesus refers to Jonah as a historical figure. Uh, But for us who are Christians, uh, let me put it in this context for those of you who may be doubting uh, whether Jonah was a historical figure or this is some kind of fable or something. Uh, We believe in a God who created everything. We believe in a God that that came to earth in, the, in flesh, Jesus, the man God, we believe that he lived a perfect life, died for our sins, and was resurrected. And we also believe that he sent the Holy Spirit to guide us. And so to make the logical jump to the fact that Jonah may have been swallowed by a great fish for God's purposes, and I wish the bonies were in here because I was going to say his porpoises, because they love puns, um, uh, is not a big jump. It's not a big jump for us. And so for us to see Jonah and see this story as historical and to see the story of the great fish as a great work of God, is, it's not difficult for us. And so uh, as you listen this morning, uh, I would hope that uh, you would give us at least uh, that much leeway. Plus, you know, a diver in Massachusetts was almost swallowed by a whale this last couple weeks. So, I mean, what more proof do you need? Um, but the book of Jonah as a prophet book, as a book of prophecy, is actually quite unique. Um, personally, I think it makes a lot of sense that Jonah wrote this book himself. Now, there is no author ascribed, but um, there are certain details about things that happened while he was in the belly of the great fish, things that happened while he was off by himself, sulking in the desert, uh, that, that only Jonah would know. And now some critics would say, well, it's awful negative. Why would someone write something so negative about themselves? And I would point us to the Gospels. Look at how the apostles, the disciples, reflected themselves in those stories. It wasn't always hunky-dory or peachy keen, right? They showed their brokenness so that Jesus Christ's glory could be amplified. And I think we see the same thing here. We have a prophet uh, who is writing about his own sin because he finally gets the message that God was trying to bring to him. Uh, at times, I've heard uh, Jonah be uh, accused of racism. Um, I think that might put too fine a point on it. For, for our purposes this morning, I think we need to draw that deeper to something deeper than, than just the sin of racism. I think Jonah has more going on. I think it could include that. But here's the deal. Jonah is a self-righteous guy. He's self-righteous. Now, now racism, if you think about it, is a self-righteous sin. It's looking at yourself and, and qualities about yourself you think are better than others. And, and Jonah's sin, as we'll see here, is definitely self-righteousness. And so we have this unique book because the prophet is almost the focus and his sin is the focus rather than the sins of the people that he's prophesying to. And so if we look at the whole book of Jonah, I think one way you could make an outline would be four moments of God's grace. Four moments of God's grace. Now I'm not going to preach the whole book, but I want to run through these moments rather quickly so we have context to, to make sure we understand what's going on in Jonah 4. So the very beginning of the book, Jonah, who's an Israelite, is called to go to this place called Nineveh. This is the first moment of God's grace. Why? Because of Nineveh. What Nineveh is. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. And if you've been listening and you you maybe catch some of this history, what is the connection between Assyria and Israel? Assyria is the conqueror of the northern kingdom of Israel. They did so in a really gruesome way. And so there's this long history of Assyria being uh, this nasty place. They called Nineveh the city of bloodshed. And, and in fact, uh, archaeological digs have uncovered reliefs or, or um, carved pictures of the way they treated the Israelites as they brought them out of Israel. And it wasn't pleasant. It wasn't pleasant at all. It was brutal. 
And so the fact that God is calling Jonah and Israelite to go to the Ninevites at all is a moment of grace. By human standards, the Ninevites are terrible people. The city of bloodshed. They don't deserve salvation. And what happens? God offers salvation anyway. God's grace is on display. Well, this is where the the famous part of the story kicks in. Jonah runs. He doesn't want any part of this. He is an Israelite. He does not like the Ninevites. He does not want any part in what God has planned for them. And so what does he do? He runs and he goes to Tarshish, which is a fun thing to say. Um, In his book, Rediscovering Jonah, Tim Keller actually takes Jonah and compares him to the prodigal son story. Jonah both acts out as the younger brother and the older brother in the story. And so here, as Jonah runs away, he's acting as the younger brother from that story. He's saying, I don't want a part of what you have going on, Father. I want to do my own thing. And so he runs far away. That brings us to the second moment of grace. Of course, Jonah in the storm, he cannot escape God's will. There's the, the men on the boat are terrified and he comes up to the deck and he says, listen, this is my fault. Just toss me overboard. Toss me over the side of the ship. Toss me over the side of the ship. That will end the storm. And I believe that Jonah being tossed over was kind of his final act of rebellion. He'd rather die than do what God's asked him to do. He didn't tell the guys, turn the ship around. He said, throw me over the side. (laughs) I'd rather die than do what God wants me to do. And so as he is being wrapped up in seaweed, he realizes he's going to die. He says this in Jonah 2, the waters closed in over me, what? To take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. He didn't expect to live. And what happens? Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. So God doesn't let it end there. God, as it says, He appoints a great fish to scoop Jonah up and bring him back to life. In that moment, this is a moment of grace because God is communicating something to Jonah. What is he communicating? I care about your life. I care about your life, Jonah. I'm not going to let you just end it for disobedience sake. I'm going to bring you back to my will. So for three days, Jonah sits in the belly of a fish. I can't imagine how awful that is. And in that time, there's an effect by the great fish. And it says here in the next couple of verses, when my life was fainting away, what happened in the belly? I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pray, uh, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Here's his revelation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He's reminded he was ready to drown in the weeds at the base of the mountain, and God scooped him up in this miraculous way. And it reminds him, salvation belongs to who? The Lord. Quick application for us, and this is, uh, maybe it's scary to some of you, but listen, we can't resist God's will. We can't. It's, it's, we look at Jonah and we say, what a fool, but what do we do every day? In some way or some form, we're running from what God wants us to do. And that might be scary. That might be scary. But here's the thing, we don't have to be afraid because just like Jonah, we cannot outrun God's grace either. God sent a fish in grace and in patience to scoop up His servant who was rebelling. So back to the story, Jonah, he gets 
barfed up on the shore. There's no other way to say it. It gets barfed up. And uh, he goes to blood-soaked Nineveh. That's where he goes. He goes to do what God has asked him to do. And so before I read what happens at Nineveh, let's recall what's been happening with God's people as the prophet comes and prophesies and he says, repent. What is the reaction of the Israelites? They are resistant to repentance. Almost always. They're like, yeah, no, maybe, no, probably not. Listen to what happens. This is why Jonah is unique because if this were any other prophetic book, we'd hear about the, the ongoing call of the prophet. But here's what happens. Jonah began to go into the city. He went about a day's journey, so he, for one day, called around the city. He called out this. You ready? This is all he said. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the end of his message. <laughs> no long poems. Nothing. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Like that. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. This is the third moment of grace. It takes one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight English words for the entire blood-soaked city of Nineveh to say, wow, we were wrong. God is right and He is good. That's it. And so they repent. God is gracious to this blood-soaked city. He's saving these nasty Ninevites, and it says that God relented of this 40-day warning, this punishment that he was going to bring. Well, here's the reality. Jonah no likey, okay? He does not like this at all. He's not pleased at all. And this is where in the story he transitions to the older brother from, from Luke 15. Now, think about this. After the fish scenario, he realizes salvation belongs to the Lord. He remembers who God is, how good He is to him. And so he goes, and he is essentially, it seems, okay with offering grace to the Ninevites. He is not okay with them accepting it or God giving it. He's not okay. He's, oh great, I'll, I'll preach all you want, God, but I know what's going to happen. He has expectations. Look at verses 1-3 through three with me from Jonah 4. Look at his reaction and his reasoning for his reaction. Verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very, or he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said uh, when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore, Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Drama much? I mean, he is upset. He's upset that God would show grace. Do you see what's happening? Look at his heart. It says, look at this. He prophesied to the Ninevites with murder in his heart. He prophesied knowing in his mind and hoping in his mind that God would not show grace. He's displeased and angry. This is where it's really revealing this pride and self-righteousness. He's responding to God with acidic anger and accusation. In a sense, he says, I knew it. I knew it. Think about these things. When we read these phrases in the Bible, what do we expect? I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Those are generally 
words of worship. These are words from Jonah's mouth of accusation against God. He's saying, how dare you be these things? I knew it. I knew you would relent. And then he kind of tries to take God hostage by saying, listen, it's either me or the Ninevites. Go ahead and take my life. If you want the Ninevites so bad, I might as well just be dead. I might as well just be dead. His expectation and his hope was set on the destruction of the Ninevites. That's what, his, that's what he hoped for. And now that it wasn't being met, he had nothing to live for. That's, that's basically what he's saying. He's like, listen, I live for the destruction of the Ninevites, and now that they are going to be saved, what is there left to live for? Back to us for a moment. How often is this true about us? Maybe not the wishing you were dead part, right? But we live for expectations in everything. This is true about me. This is true about me. I expect things to go certain ways. I expect my life to be certain ways. I expect, I expect, I expect. And when those expectations inevitably aren't met, what am I? I'm miserable. I'm miserable. That's what will happen inevitably when the expectations we're living with right now in this minute aren't met. Because inevitably they won't be met. This is one of the reasons I think Jonah wrote this book because what he's doing is he's just painted this almost black background of his heart so that he can show us God's loving heart in the foreground. So let's take a look at God's heart. It starts in verse 4. And verse 4 is where the fourth moment of God's grace begins. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Another way to say that is what right do you have to be angry? I want us to read this question with a gentle tone. God could have smote Jonah there in the desert, but instead he asks a question, and I believe that we should read it in a gentle manner because he doesn't just end the conversation there. He goes on in 5-11 through 11 to give Jonah another example from the created world of his love. He wants to teach Jonah something. Now what's ironic in the moment is who actually has the right to be angry right now? God does. Jonah, just let him have it. God has a right in his holiness, in his glory, to, to be angry at what Jonah is feeling, what he's saying, what he's doing, what he has done. But God instead takes Jonah by the hand and he teaches him a lesson in patient love. Take a look at 5-11. through 11. Now, here's what happens. To summarize a little bit, Jonah... After the people repent, he doesn't stick around for the repentance party, right? He goes out for a pity party. I didn't plan to say any of those things, but they just came out, all right? I feel very Baptist right now, okay? Um, he went out for a pity party, so he sets up a booth. He kind of builds some rocks in the desert, and what does he do? He sits back, and he watches for what he hopes is the inevitable destruction of the Ninevites. He sits back and watches. And as it doesn't get destroyed and doesn't get destroyed, he gets more and more miserable. So God does this. He causes overnight this vine to grow up over this little shelter that, that he has built, and it gives him shade from the sun and the heat and, and blockage from the wind, and Jonah loves that. He loves the vine. He's like, this is really pleasant. I like this comfortable place that I have found. But then what happens the next morning? God appoints a worm. He appoints a scorching wind, and he kills that plant. And once again, what, where does that leave Jonah? He says, 
This guy, he has one, he has one threat. It is better for me to die than to live because of this vine. That's his, only, that's his go-to. And so here's what God has to say. God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Again, there he goes. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. That just is meaning there's so much life in that city. Should I not care about it is what God says. So God appoints a great fish to Jonah to remind Jonah that he cares about Jonah's well-being. And now he's appointing a vine to Jonah to remind him how much he cares for the well-being of the Ninevites. Colin Smith, uh, somebody I was reading this week, says this, the vine was a good gift from God bringing joy and comfort and blessing. But then God sent the worm, bringing sorrow, disappointment, and loss. On top of that, God sent the wind, which, was, which brought pain, affliction, and distress. It's easy to see how God can use the vine, but how does God use the worm and the wind? God used the worm and the wind to save Jonah from a vine-centered life. A vine-centered person is one who is so taken up with the joy of God's good gifts that he or she ends up loving the gifts more than the giver. That's exactly Jonah's problem. Not just a vine. It's not just a vine. Think about all the things that Jonah loves. Jonah loved the gifts of God more than God. He loved that God saved Israel. He loved it. Of course he did. He was an Israelite. He hated that God saved Nineveh. He hated it. He loved life on his terms. I'll go to Tarshish. He hated God. He hated life on God's terms. He loved the shade from the vine. Loved it. Mmm, mmm, shady, nice. He hated the heat and the wind and the sun. But despite that, here's where I want us to focus. Despite all those things, Jonah's a mess, and Jonah wants us to know he's a mess. Despite those things, how does God respond in a heart and actions that are gracious, compassionate, and patient? Rather than shoving Jonah in his place. He could. He could do that. Rather than shoving Jonah in his place, what does he do? He takes them, him there gently. He takes him there gently. And so in a sense, if you think about the book of Jonah, think about all the punishments. Think about all the smites that could have been. I'm not sure if that's a word, but I like it. Think of all the smites that could have been. All the smotes. I don't know. Whatever. Think of all the things that, that God could have done to put people in their place. But instead, what do we get? A long list of gracious, patient salvation. That's the story of Jonah. And I think if we're not careful, there's a danger of missing a subtle oversight. Because every time we read one of these stories, whether we like it or not, we kind of identify with a character. And I would say this, if we're in the church, we definitely don't identify with the Ninevites. I don't think any of us are thinking, yeah, that's me. Blood-soaked city, super repentant, all these things. So in some ways, we identify with Jonah. This is at least true for me. But also not in all the bad ways. Like, well, I don't know if I'd be as bad as Jonah. But I think if we look at it carefully enough, 
we can see something about ourselves in Jonah and we can see God treating Jonah in a way that he treats us and it can be life-changing. I think about Jonah out in the desert. What is he fixated on? He's out there sitting from afar. He's expecting God to do something. He's either going to have grace or not on Nineveh. He can't do anything about it. And so he sits from afar. He chides at discomfort and he waits for God to act. And I think we, we get so focused on God saving Nineveh and we get so focused on the great fish and we get so focused on Jonah's anger that we miss this fact that God is so patient with Jonah. He's so patient with Jonah. We as people, thinking of the world, if you want to put the world in this terms, if the world is Nineveh and we're Jonah, I think we get so fixated on what God's going to do with the world. And in some sense, we sit back we hope for comfort, and we know that God's going to do something. We just don't know what, so we're kind of observing. And so we know God has patience, or he's going to have wrath, or he's going to have something with the world, but we forget that God patiently loves us like he loves Jonah. Because even as followers of Christ, like Jonah, we continue to be sinners, don't we? As bad as Jonah, we continue to sin, and yet what does God do? He patiently loves us through our sin. So we could look at our lives and we could be, think about a couple things. One, we could be reminded, first of all, that we used to be Ninevites, okay? We used to be Ninevites. God showed us compassion even when we were the blood-soaked people we were in our sin without God. He showed us that compassion. Then even as He continues to love us through our sin as we live our lives much like Jonah. Uh, this is from Keller's book. He quotes a man named Jacques Ellul, which is fun to say. God knows the totality of the human heart, and this does not exhaust God's love and patience. He continues to take his rebellious child by the hand. That's the patient love that God shows Jonah. That's the patient love that God shows us. And so at times, we're under the vine. Things are great. Other times, we're being plagued with worm, wind, or sun. And all through it, what is God doing? He's patiently calling us to Himself. He's patiently teaching us. He's loving us in patience. So as we think about this, maybe you're listening this morning, maybe you're here this morning, um, and you're, maybe you're in the category of Ninevite. You're not currently one of God's people. Here's what I want you to hear this morning. Here's what Jonah is saying to you this morning. You were designed, you were designed to receive God's love. That's how we were designed. Every human being was created in this, this system where they were, they were supposed to receive God's love. That's why we were created. That's how we were designed. That's why in our lives we long for things that satisfy. But as long as we're not looking to God, we'll never find that thing. We'll never find it. We will remain eternally unsatisfied because it only comes from one source. And so this morning, what God is saying through the story of the Ninevites and the story of Jonah, He's saying, turn from your sin and compassion. Now, I know that this phrase, turn from your sin, may seem like a condemnation, but really, it's this compassionate thing. If God were not compassionate, He would not tell us our problem. He would not say, turn from your sin. He'd say, okay, you do you. That's not what he does. He says, well, you need something. You need me. So this morning, 
The Scriptures call you to believe in Jesus Christ. That's the route to salvation. Jesus Christ came. He lived a life, a perfect one. He died a death for those sinners that, that deserved that death, but He stood in their place. And then He was risen from the grave and then He ascended. And, and that story, that, that factual thing, is the way that God brings compassion and the message of you can be saved. It's patient. It's loving. It's gracious. And so this morning, if you are a Ninevite, God sees you. God sees you. God has made a way for you to be with Him. For the rest of us, us Jonas, just like Jonah, God is patiently leading us by the hand towards something better. Towards something better. Listen, I do it, you do it. We live our lives by biases. We live our life in idolatry. We live our life in pride. We live our life full of expectations of everything. We do this. We live our lives expecting things. We live our life on our terms. But listen, the way we live our life in all those ways pales in comparison. It pales in comparison to the life that's lived knowing that you are patiently loved by God. He has us by the hand. He points out our sin. He brings vine. He brings worm. He brings wind. He brings sun. And all of that is Him guiding us patiently to Himself. And I know that sometimes, because we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week, I know it can be a challenge to find meaning every week. I know it can be a challenge as you sit there and think, okay, cool, bread and wine again. Let's, let's figure this out. But listen, this morning, I can't think of a better tangible image of God's patient love for us than this table right here. No matter what's happened this week, no matter how good your week's been, no matter how bad your week's been, no matter what expectations you had or weren't met or were met or whatever, no matter whether you had a week of vine or wind or worm or sun, no matter what sins you committed this week, God is here patiently saying, confess your sins and come. I love you. That's what He's saying. And so this morning, as we come to the table, I want that to be our personal focus. That needs to be my personal focus. Here God is inviting His children in. Not because you're worthy. Not because you're great. Not because you did better than Jonah did, so you're just a notch above. No, God is saying to Jonah, to you, to everybody here, in all of our rebellion, in all the ways that we live our life in our own terms, He's saying, confess and come to Me. I love you. And so, if you believe those things, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the only salvation from your sin, if you've been baptized, you've made that profession of faith, you're invited in as a child of God to come and, and, and experience God's patient presence. Right here, right now. This morning, if, if you don't believe those things, or you're in the midst of fleeing to Tarshish, which is a Christianese way of saying there's a sin in your life, and you will not confess it. The Bible makes it clear this is not the time for you to participate in the Lord's Supper. And so we, as a session, as a church, would echo that same warning. What I'm going to do, let's take a few moments to pray. I'll gather us back together with a prayer of blessing. Let's take a few moments. 
We've already confessed our sins. Let's thank God in specific ways that He is showing you right now His patient love. Just for a few moments. Father, I echo all the prayers that have gone up to you in this moment, and I say thank you for patiently loving me. A sinner, one who has high expectations for this life, one who struggles in idolatry, one who lives life on his own terms, and yet continually your arms are open for me. Like the father of the prodigal son and the that both the, the younger brother and the older brother, what happens? You come out to meet us. You come out to talk with us. You come out to be with us. You come to us, and you come to us ultimately through Jesus Christ, whose body and blood was broken and spilt and whose sacrifice we celebrate in this sacrament. So I pray this day that you would bless this bread, bless this wine and this juice, Bless these people. Bless this time of unity. May we be bolstered in our spirit. May we be reminded of this unflinching, gracious, merciful, patient love with which you love us. And may it affect us deep in our hearts. May it draw us close to you. May it draw us to your word. May it push us to our knees in prayer. Not because those things accomplish something that you need, but it's because that's where we ought to be with the Father who loves us the way you do. So I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.